Well, among other things, I'd like you to keep one proverb in mind as we go through this passage now. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a, for a fool than for him. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Last Lord's Day, we talked about this man who was born blind receiving his sight and, and all that the sign was beginning to show forth there, uh, how it revealed Jesus was the great healer, but, but more than that, that he was the one who would bring spiritual sight. But that plays itself out really in the, in the rest of this chapter. And we have to keep in mind that while chapter 9 is a story about a real man, real story, true story, who was blind from birth and re received his sight from Jesus, John has placed this sign, as he did all seven signs in the book of signs, the first 11 chapters, the seven signs that he places in, he's placed this in the gospel, and this one particularly, because it is a story about spiritual blindness and the sign of unbelief. It is about the oppression one can expect from the spiritually blind. It is about the cost of discipleship and the penalties of fear and pride, the fear of man and the pride of man. And it is about the efficacious love of God and new life in Christ, even for those despised and rejected by all others. So if you see, see if you see these things as we go through this passage. Again, an, an overview of what I just read. After the incident of the, of, the, of the blind man being healed in the first seven verses, the community questions him. These are his neighbors. And he provides an honest and simple testimony of what happened. He gives just the facts. That's 8 through 12. Because of this, and because he mentioned that it was a man named Jesus who did this to you, he says, and I, he says it was a man named Jesus who did it. Well, that triggers something in the Pharisees, or in the, in the neighbor's mind, so they bring him to the Pharisees to question him, where there is strong disagreement about what to make of this, in verse 13 through 17. Some of the Pharisees says there's no possibility he is from God, he's healing, he's doing works on the Sabbath. But some of the Pharisees are saying, well, how could a sinner do a sign like this? And there's division amongst them. Now, the Jews, and remember, in, in, John's, in John's language, the Jews don't refer to all of the Jewish nation because there's plenty of Jews who are following Jesus and believing on Jesus and followed the John the Baptist and then got pointed to Jesus, but rather the Jewish authorities. These are the, these are the civil authorities regarding and around the temple. They control all of the economy that is taking place, all of the um, who is allowed to come in and, uh, and bring sacrifices. They have great control over the city of Jerusalem. These Jewish authorities, they did not believe that a miracle had occurred, and so they call on his parents to try to prove this. The parents distance themselves from him, um, and, and they say, well, yeah, he's our son, and, and he was born blind, and, and he's received his sight, but uh, we don't know anything about it. And we're told straight up by John that this is the testimony that they give because they were afraid themselves of being kicked out of the synagogue. This is the kind of power that these authorities had. They then called back the man and demanded that he agree with them that Jesus was a sinner. And, and the ensuing argument ended with the Jewish authorities kicking the man out of the synagogue. They, they bring him in and they say, give glory to God right now. You know, tell the truth. This man's a sinner, isn't he? He refuses to do so. And, and in this interchange that takes place, they end up kicking him out of this, the synagogue. The synagogue would be the assembly I believe this is still taking place in, in Jerusalem after the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
So it's not, not necessarily specific of um, a particular house of worship, but I, the idea of being, you're kicked out of all, all churches. You can't be, you, you don't get excommunicated from one church, but you can just traipse on to another church. This is the church of God. And when you're excommunicated, you're out. You're out of the assembly of God's people. And that's what they're saying to this man born blind. You're out. You're out. You're not a part of God's people anymore. And they kick him out. After this, though, Jesus found him. Remember, Jesus had, um, had, had wandered out of the temple and was able to pass right through the people without them being able to see him. These people who believe that they can see, can't see Jesus as he goes out. Then Jesus sees a man who can't see, and then Jesus gives him sight. It's a, you're supposed to notice that as, you, as you're reading through this chapter, the, the play on words, the play on these people all the time. Well, Jesus finds him. Jesus finds him outside and remade the whole man now with spiritual sight in verses 35 through 38. Jesus says to him, do you, Jesus approaches him and says, do you believe in the Son of God? And the man answers, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? It's, it's still not clear or a little tenuous to, to the man who's now received his sight. And Jesus says to him straight up, I, um, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And that's all it takes. The man's eyes spiritually are opened, and he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He worshiped him at that moment. And then the chapter ends with Jesus explaining what the whole point was. Listen again to 39 through 41. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who, who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and they said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. So follow carefully, and you'll see exactly what Jesus is talking about. First of all, his neighbors, the, the neighbors of the man born blind, those who knew he had been born blind, they ask him to tell what happened. And you can only imagine the wonder and the excitement. This is a man who had been a beggar at the side of the temple or you know, somewhere in public on a regular basis. He's poor, he's dirty, and all he can do to, to make a living at all is beg. And now he is walking around being able to see. It's a glorious, it's a glorious transformation. And, and these are people who've grown up around him. They're excited. They want to know how this happened. And this blind man granted sight simply tells his story. He does so humbly. He, 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 does, he gives all, all the glory is given to God, all the, all the honor is given to what Jesus did. He doesn't say he didn't do anything. Jesus did all of this. Amazed by all of this, they bring him to the Pharisees. And, and we're not told here exactly the motivation of why the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. But remember already this tension that is, exists between the Pharisees and the people. And, and how the people responded when John the Baptist called all the great multitudes to repentance and then pointed them all to Jesus over time. And the Pharisees hated it. They already had envy towards what this gathering that was going on. They were already worried about what might rise up against them, against this authority that existed all over Jerusalem, all over the temple, and all over that. So, the, the, so they bring him to Pharisees. Maybe they're bringing him to say, either this is a guy you need to, to take care of or Maybe this is someone that you need to understand is the person that he's claiming to be. In any event, they bring him to Jesus, and already there would be this, 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 this great tension that, is, that uh, takes place. You have this blind beggar, dirty, sitting in the streets. Probably Pharisees don't even want to touch him. 
And then in there, he's brought before the ultra-clean, gnat-strangling, super-holy Pharisees who believe they see the law clearly. They see the law clearly. Again, he is questioned, and he just gives a simple account again to the Pharisees in verses 13 through 15. And then we'll return to that man's testimony then of faith later. But when he gives this answer, this simple answer, I, I don't think that you, you should read into this, that this man who has now received his sight is naive. Um, but he, he understands the tension, the political tension that would be going on at, at, that, at that very moment. And, and so I think he sticks with his story. I, I, I'm not exactly sure. Verse, verses 13 through 15 again. Listen. He says, They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees, now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You can feel that tension right there. And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. That's it. That's all. I can't tell you anymore. Well, why is that happening? One of the first, first things you have to realize is, the, is to see that what keeps people from coming to Jesus? Well, what's keeping people from coming alongside Jesus in this passage? It's the fear of man. It's the fear of what authorities might do to you. There, there is this short, tragic interlude with the man's parents who will not answer the question, how then does he see for fear of the Jewish authorities? Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, He'd be put out of the synagogue. He'd be out of the assembly. Also in uh, chapter 7, verse 13, we already know back in the time of the tabernacles, remember when Jesus comes in the middle of the, of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he's, um, he's kind of going in between, and they're looking for him. The, the, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, they're wondering if Jesus is going to show up, but they're doing so quietly, and John tells us in, in chapter 7, he says, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews, for fear of those authorities. They said that anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Messiah would be kicked out of the assembly of the people of God. Now, this would have, you have to understand, this would have civil, ecclesial, social, and economic ramifications. Like, it, unfortunately, in our world, if someone here is removed from the church, they can't come here on Sunday. But that's about all the changes for them. But that's not the world, that's not the world in which Jesus was living. That's not the world of the temple. And that's not the world that God is creating, recreating, where, the, where the, the light of culture and civilization is, is growing and to come forth from the church. And, and so it was important then. Fast forward to our own day, and this is the fear of the gospel, though, in many other ways. Where, where might we get into trouble if we were to claim that Jesus is our Lord? Where would we get into trouble if we were to say that we believe the words of the Bible? Where would we get in trouble? What, what, would, what would it cost us if we were to say, we follow whatever God's word says, unapologetically? Well, it's a fear of being associated with doctrines that today are considered hateful, racist, offensive, non-inclusive, archaic, non-scientific, chauvinistic, misogynistic, and now homophobic, transphobic, and on and on and on, right? Today, that is the world's definition of what it means to be a Christian. And today, that is the world's and possibly your family's or your employer's definition 
of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so let's be clear. It is the fear of being mocked, criticized, rejected, disowned, excluded, demoted, fired, delicensed, and on and on. The man's parents would, would not stand up for their son. Within the family, the man's parents would not stand up for his son. Elsewhere, Jesus foresees this and warns about the sharp edge of the gospel and the cost of discipleship. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and following. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And then this dire warning. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Our nation might, might honor those who have paid the ultimate price. You see this uh, um, during, uh, during Fourth of July celebrations and remembrance of great heroes of America, who, those who paid the ultimate price in their military service. But what do, what do we think of? What of Christians? What of Christians who lose jobs, families, or are martyred for Christ, for the sake of Christ? What, what are they considered? Are they considered those who made the ultimate sacrifice even for Jesus Christ? Or are they encouraged just to compromise a little, not, be, not speak up quite so much, keep their faith private, just to themselves? Jesus says, those who deny me, I will deny you before the Father. You see, our ultimate allegiance, our primary and ultimate allegiance, Jesus is saying, must be to him. To be a Christian is to say that my first identity, my first calling, my first importance is that I follow Jesus, even if it means taking up a cross. We're beginning to experience this kind of persecution and costly persecution in our generation. And I fear for our children and further generations, it may grow quite, quite a bit stronger here unless God is so kind to bring about a great revival. I served a couple, uh, a couple of times briefly in Indonesia amongst a group of people called the Sundanese, who were all considered to be Muslims. There, there, was no, there were no exceptions. And in these small groups of Sundanese Christians who came to faith, I witnessed the, these small gatherings of Christians who had lost, been kicked out of their homes, lost their jobs, been disowned by their family, we're, we're fearful, and later on, years later, some of their churches are burned for one reason, and only one reason. They said they believed in Jesus. That's it. That, that's, that's all they were doing. And they lost, some of them, everything because of it. 
This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to not be fearful of claiming the name of Christ. And this is why John, in Revelation, John will put cowards at the top of the list of those who will be thrown in the lake of fire. Cowards. Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Interesting, so many of those we, we would not be surprised to see in the list. But the cowardly top the list. We are to fear God and not man. Brothers and sisters, we are to fear God and not man. Matthew chapter 10, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say there what is true. Fear God and all will go well. In the end, all will go well. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 8, that, that it doesn't matter um, what happens to us, that we cannot be separated from the love of God. And, and if he has given us Christ, then he's going to give us all things. But how we get to that all things includes joining, walking with a cross like Jesus, willing to suffer anything for the sake of the name of Christ. Jesus doesn't say, don't fear man, because I'm going to make everything sweet and happy for you here in this earth. He says, don't fear man, because you want to place your fear in something far greater. And when you place your fear there, you won't fear man. He says, don't fear anyone, even if they could kill you. Don't fear them. They can't touch your soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And a man who does that is free. Man who does that walks around unafraid, able to speak from his heart what he believes and who he believes in without concern because he fears only the one who could cast his soul and body in hell and will not because he's faithfully following him. But what we also see in this passage, and this is the tragedy, we have a mom and a dad who because of fear of man turned their son over to the Pharisees. We're not standing up for him. I don't know for sure what he's talking about. You'll have to ask. Yeah, he was blind. And he can see now. We don't know why. You go ask him. And so what we see here is the fear of consequences for compromising, for standing uh, instead of standing and testifying for the truth. It leads to cruel lovelessness of others, others in the faith oftentimes, to refuse to stand for the sake of the gospel in front of others who may, be, may find themselves in a place where they're challenged, and not to come alongside them, but to deny that you're a part of that, is to show a lack of love for a brother or sister. Fear sacrifices someone else. Fear sacrifices someone else. Later, think of this. Peter will deny the Lord, and he will sacrifice Jesus for the sake of not falling, falling under the authorities as well. I don't know him. I don't want to get caught up in this. Three times he will do so. And when Jesus restores him, interestingly, when Jesus restores him after his resurrection, he doesn't ask, well, do you believe in me? He doesn't ask, okay, are you going to follow me now? 
He asked this simple question three times. Peter, do you love me? Because the actions that you took there before the other fire were actions of lovelessness, of a refusal to love me. This is what the fear of man does. The fear of man causes us to compromise our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to each and every one of us in different times, in different parts of our lives, in different stories that we are all in, you will be challenged. You will be challenged in a moment, sometimes without a, with opportunity to get yourself ready. So get ready. You'll be challenged in a moment. Will you stand for Christ? Will you stand for the truth? Will you stand for what his word says right now? Will you stand it and say, well, if the word says it's, it's true? Will you even be able to say, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but it's, but it's what the word says, it's true. Do what you will. I'm following Christ. Because those moments of testing God promises will come. Maybe they have come. We all need to grow up in them. We need to be prepared to stand against the fear of man by having an appropriate fear of God and a trust in him. The right kind of fear of God keeps you from all kinds of sin, including re refusing to declare your faith in the Lord Jesus no matter what. That's the fear of man. That's what happens to these parents. That's this tragic breakup of a family on the very day that he receives probably the greatest gift of his entire life. His parents walk away. Secondly, we have not only the, the fear of the gospel, but pride that rejects the gospel here in the story of the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities. You see, the cure for cowardice is not self-confidence. I'm not going to be a coward. I trust in myself. I trust in my abilities. I trust in my knowledge. Do not forget this proverb. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The self-confident Jewish authorities are as wrong as they are confident. Confidence didn't save them. Confidence didn't open their eyes. After realizing from their time with the parents that this is not a hoax, they were kind of hoping that it's just, yeah, yeah he was sort of blind or he was, we just pretended he was blind. No, they say, no, he was blind. Testimony is given. He's, he's been healed. So it's not a hoax. So they haul the man who is blind back in, and they demand, they demand, verse 24, <coughs> with them, that, that, that they agree with him that Jesus is a sinner. <clears throat> verse 24, they again called the man who was blind, and they said to him, give glory to God, take an oath, take an oath. We know that this man is a sinner. Speak it out. Agree with us. Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the son of God. He didn't do those miracles. He was not born of a virgin. He did not uh, raise from the dead. He did not ascend into heaven. He is not sitting at the right hand of God, ruling the nations. Give glory to God. This man's a sinner. They want him to give a high-handed, repeat offended, call him a high-handed, repeat offending Sabbath breaker. They had done so back in chapter 5, verse 16. They did, it's, it's brought up all through the Gospels in a number of ways. Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. Christ continually, openly, on purpose, healed on the Sabbath instead of other days of the week. And it's worth noting that the deliberate 
provocation of the authorities to anger by defying the authorities of an ungodly rule and law has, has a long and noble tradition. Jesus goes out of his way to break their laws openly. He wants people freed from tyrannical rule. There is something to consider here. Couldn't Jesus just have made it a lot less, lot less awkward for all those to follow him by healing them on one of the other days of the week without compromising the gospel? Was it really a gospel issue? But actually what we see is that such controversy creates an atmosphere that begins to sort people out, revealing the cowards and the proud blind. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? The Jewish authorities, the Jewish authorities can see the man who is born blind can see now. They can see that the man born blind can see now. But they cannot accept what this means about Jesus. They can't. Which is crazy because their own scriptures attest that this is exactly what God is going to do. Psalm 146, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous, Isaiah 29. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is what Jesus would come to do. This is what the Messiah would come to do. And, not, and, and so he's doing it. These signs that are, are accompanying him are to declare him to be the one that the old covenant promised would, would happen to us, would happen to the world. This is the one who would come and remake all things. After his third testimony, he's the third time now that the, the man comes and he has to give testimony to neighbors, then before the Pharisees, then he's dragged before them afterwards. And this third testimony, far more verbose and serrated at the religious elite, when he says to, the, says to them things like, why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, does his, uh, is a worshiper of God and does his will, then God hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's courage. <laughs> you guys don't believe in him? You say you believe in God and you follow the God of the scriptures, but you're not willing to connect the dots here? Is this not obvious to you? Do you need a little Bible study from me? And that does it for them. That does it for them. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sin. Remember the problem that we saw? That the, the, we're looking back at the very beginning of chapter 9. We saw the problem when Jesus passed by the man born blind. And even his disciples asked this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The, the, this mindset that if there was a sin, if there was someone who was dirty, unclean, cast out in some kind of way that way, either he must have sinned or he must have come from some kind of sinful action that took place and God was now judging. Jesus had said, that's not why this man was born blind, but instead that I might reveal the glory of God, that the, that the works of God might be revealed for who he is. 
And, but, but this man has this, uh, this, this way of speaking to the uh, authorities with great confidence, with just a tinge of irony. The man's hauled away as a sinner who cannot see. The authorities want them out of their sight. They can no longer see this sinner and seal their own blindness. And so we come again to the whole point of the story. Let me read again verses 39 through 41 and see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. That is, those who think that they can see. Do you see that? That those who can't see would be opened, would have their eyes opened, would, would spiritually be able to see. And those who think they can see would be made blind. He's right in their midst. They can't see. And then some of the Pharisees who saw that are offended, and they say to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. You see, if you, if you, if you understood that you're blind... Your sin would be gone. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Because the one and the only one who could take away your sin, not your stupid, gnat-straining law-keeping, not your goody-two-shoes religious following, but only the blood of a man who is going to die on a cross for you can save you from your sins, and no one else and nothing else. And I'm standing right before you. You've been made blind. You've been made blind, and your sin remains. They don't want a Savior like Jesus, resenting what that implies about them. They wanted to be affirmed on their own merits, not forgiven of sins through a Savior. And this is people in their pride. People in their self-serving pride feel the same way today. And it's taught all over the world, all in, in, in churches all over the nation. You're basically good people. Jesus came to make you a little bit better and show you how to use your goodness in good ways. That is not the teaching of the scripture. That is the teaching of the pit. Because if it was a true, then we don't need a savior. If our hearts are basically good, but they just need to be educated a little, then there was no need for a new heart. If there's no need for a new heart, there's no need for a man, for a carpenter, 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, to die on a cross, who himself was perfect. In fact, the son of God himself. Why would he need to die if we were good people? We're not good people. To say we are good people is to make us blind. To declare our need for a savior who will forgive our sins because we are not is to proclaim like Jesus, to be the light of the world in a dark place and to show people the way to true life. It's what opens eyes. Hard words are what brings soft hearts. Open, honest truth is what softens hearts, opens eyes, and turns people to Christ. People in their self-serving pride do not feel that way. They don't want to admit their sin or their need for another to take care of their sins. Some advocate. 
But John writes in his epistle these words in chapter 2. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We don't have to claim to God, well, look, we're pretty good people, aren't we? We have an advocate. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who turns away God's wrath. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, by this By this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him. I see you, Christ. I see your law. I see your way. (coughs) He who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk just as he walked. This is faith in the God of the gospel. This man, born blind, avoids the blindness of fear and pride. He refuses to give in to the taunts of the proud Jewish authorities, even to the point of losing his family and his kin on the very same day he receives his sight. He's despised and rejected, just as Jesus would be one day. He humbly believes and worships Jesus after being thrown out. He's received a miracle and yet boasts in nothing but himself. Verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. The gospel teaches us that we are worse than we thought. The way, it says, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. The the gospel teaches us that we are worthy of far more than we have yet been given. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal separation from the glory and blessing of God forever. No matter how bad it has gone for you so far in this life, it has not begun, not even tasted, to go so bad if you are not resting in the love and the promises and the full work of Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death. But when we look to Christ as our Savior, and our only hope, eyes are open, sins are forgiven, fears are relieved, and eternal life is ours. Romans 6.23 continues, for the, but for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and in Him alone. Refuse, then, refuse to bend to the fear mongers and keep yourself from the proud, the cool, the man in the culture that is wise in his own eyes, and the self-righteous. Keep yourselves from them. The world will want to shame you if you say you believe this Bible and on the Lord Jesus. Well, let them. They will want to shame you away from standing with others they have deemed sinners and haters. Refuse to do so. Our response can and should be like the blind man. I don't know all the answers to all of your questions and attacks upon the word of God, the church. I don't know, what, I don't know to answer all the questions about, about what the word of God is teaching, about Christ Jesus himself or the gospel of salvation. I can't answer all of your questions. What I do know is this. I was blind, but now I see. I see my sin. I see my hopelessness before the righteous and holy God. I see Jesus lifted high on a cross, nailed, pierced, bloodied, dead, buried. I see Jesus raised from the dead, and my only justification, but my sure justification and righteousness in him, 
to stand before a holy God, to glorify and enjoy him forever and forever, is Jesus Christ. My hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone, his work, and all, all by grace through faith. Amen. Father in heaven, break the hard hearts of the proud. And we Americans are a proud people, so wise in our own eyes, tempted to find our own way, follow our own hearts, and quite ready to set aside the teachings of your word. This is the way of self-deceit and death. Instead, open our eyes, open eyes to our sin and our rebellion, open spiritually blind eyes, and turn them to Jesus Christ and the amazing grace of the gospel, forgiveness, freedom from sin, and eternal life. Take us out of the group of the Pharisees, of parents who would, not, who, would, who would not stand with their child, those who are afraid of man, those who are too full of pride. Take us away and out of that and place us in the glorious and good and free gospel of Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. We'll sing.